Hello, and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. Uh, that is the last time I will say that. Uh, this is an emotional roundtable for me. It is my final time as host. In fact, I dare say that Topher is full-on host in this episode, and I am just a panelist. Uh, he is an amazing, amazing person. You guys are going to love spending time with him every single week. And also, if you love the show, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. In fact, my promise was to read five-star reviews verbatim if they were left on iTunes, so I am going to do that right now. Today's five-star review comes from Robert McDonald. Robert McDonald's review is entitled, The Tome Show, colon, leader in RPG news and GS spells. Dear Robert McDonald, I want to, first of all, thank you for meeting with me in the Council of Sages at the fabled Candlekeep Library for our annual conference on life-altering matters of the realms. The drinks, delicious hin tobacco and countless hours of life-altering discussions, followed by hours of cards against demi-humans, has affected me deeply, and in the most positive of ways. Subsequent to our discussion, specifically on the topic of campaign styles, it became abundantly clear that a show discussing campaign styles should be scheduled immediately. I fear that if we do not have a show on this topic soon, the very fabric of the weave could come undone and everyone may die. Therefore, we will schedule such a show that will focus heavily on sandbox campaigns. Additionally, the Council of Sages was particularly impressed by your persuasive arguments, which I list below as the compelling reasons behind my decision. 1. Sandbox campaign styles are often a neglected topic, even though they are recognized as one of the most important topics known to the multiverse RPGs and Will Wheaton. Just ask him. Number 2. Neglecting this topic any further would do a disservice to the fabled, powerful, and influential shadow group known only as the Dungeon Masters, as well as anger the gods forever. Since we know that we must appease the Dungeon Masters, we will be feeding their minds full of intellectual goodness, such as... The discussion on sandbox campaigns. So dedicated am I to this cause of ensuring that a robust, action-packed, and intellectually stimulating discussion on sandbox campaigns occurs, I am going to cast a geus upon myself. The geus will expire on January 16th, 2017. Furthermore, I am enhancing the geus with a wish to guarantee that I, nor anyone else, will have a way to overcome the effects of the Geus spell. I hereby proclaim that this show, with an amazing lineup of guests to discuss the profoundly vital topic, will be scheduled no later than January 15th of 2017. With sincere gratitude, James Inchicasso, self-Geus Geus, singing bard, host of the roundtable, host of Gamer to Gamer, verbatim reader. P.S. I will try to run a quick game of Cards Against Demi-Humans towards the end of the show, if time permits, for shenanigans' sakes. Whew. Man, that uh, was quite the review uh, from Robert McDonald. Thank you so much for that. 
I actually think a, a discussion on sandbox campaigns is a great idea. Uh, so if the Tome Show does not do it, uh, we will do it over on my new show. Stay tuned for announcements about that at the end of the episode. All right, everybody, before we get to the meat of this discussion, I would like to thank our sponsor for this podcast. Our sponsor for this podcast is OpenGamingStore.com, and my product pick for this episode is HyperCore 2099 5E. Bring 5th edition into the future with HyperCore 2099. It is this amazing alternate future with all sorts of technology and superheroes and amazingness with a rule set you already know from a great game designer, Mike Myler. Check it out. It is from Legendary Games, a publisher we trust. Use the code TOMESHOW2016 at checkout to get 10% off. Thank you so much to Open Gaming Store for sponsoring this episode of The Roundtable and the Tome Show podcast. And now, here with me for my final show to tell you all about Open Gaming Store is the one and only Strahd. Von Zarovich. Good evening, or afternoon, or, or morning, whenever you are listening to this. I wanted to tell you all about OpenGamingStore.com. When I'm waiting for adventurers to enter my realm of Barovia, I'm pretty bored. So I go to OpenGamingStore.com and I get all the games I need so that everyone in Barovia will play a fun RPG or board game with me. They've got it all. PDFs, they've got amazing hardcover books and accessories that they will deliver all the way to my domain of dread, so I'm sure they can get products to you. They've got great bundled deals all the time. So go check them out. OpenGamingStore.com. Tell them the Tome Show and Strahd sent you. Do it! I am commanding you with my vampiric abilities. I have them. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Roundtable. Tonight, with these great and fantastic panelists, we're going to talk about the new DM Guild's print-on-demand of old D&D products. We're also going to touch on and get these fine folks' opinions on the Unearthed Arcana for the fighter and for the monk. So, hey, let's kick off this roundtable by meeting our wonderful and fantastic panelists. First, Jim Kelly. How are you doing today, Jim? Hey, Topher. It's good to, good to be here. Right on. So listen, I got to get to know you question for you. And this question's for everybody, but we're going to you know do it one at a time. What is the first or favorite printed D&D module you remember owning? The first module I ever owned was the Keep on the Borderlands because it came in the basic box set. That was the first module that I remember running for, for my players, but I don't really count that one because it came with the box set. The first module I ever bought, and I still own it, was C1. It was the uh, hidden shrine of Tamakoan. It had the upside-down pyramid, and it had sort of a Mexican Aztec-type theme to it. It was very fun. Very cool. I loved that era of the C series. They were such a great and fantastic series. I have all the pastel modules. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. I, do. I just I do. love them. Next, we're going to move on to the man, the myth, the legend, Jay Africa. Hey, Jay, how are you doing today? Doing all right, Topher. Uh, thanks for having me again today. Uh, just to let you know, I'm sick as a dog, so I might sound a little husky. Ooh. Well, that just makes you sound sexier. So, Jay, what's your favorite or first remembered printed module? Let's see. Uh, as with, I'm sure, a lot of us here, 
the first modules, the first couple of modules I owned were B1 and B2. That's In Search of the Unknown and Keep on the Borderlands because I got my start with the um, the red box as well, the basic set red box. I figured to just toss a little something different. Uh, I'm going to say that um, <clears throat> one of my favorite modules, because it's one of the few that I've actually been able to run to completion, because I usually do homebrew and stuff uh, up until recently, up until 5th edition. Um, one of my favorite modules was King's Harvest, B11, King's Harvest. Uh, and it has a special place in my heart because it's the first module that I bought back in like 1989 when I moved from the Philippines to the United States. And so, you know, I'd left pretty much all of my D&D stuff. For some reason, I packed up my Marvel superheroes and Ghostbusters, the role-playing game stuff to take with me to the United States. But I left all of my D&D stuff. And, you know, I walked into a, a hobby store. There it was. I was like, you know what? Sold. I'm picking that up. And yeah, I, I ran it for some friends in high school and uh, I still actually have my copy, but it's missing all the handouts because I gave it to them. Silly me. That sort of started a new era of D&D in my life when I, uh, when I first moved here to the States. Right on. Hey, Joe. How you doing, hey, Mr. Lutowski? I'm doing great. And uh, Jim, I just wanted to say that Hidden Shrine of Tomoe Chan, they did a great fourth edition uh, version of that as a special... Um, promo to dms of the organized play program at the time the dnd encounters and that was really cool um i actually tried to make a custom mini of the centaur mummy that is like the boss of the thing i'll put some pictures in maybe we can put them in the show notes that was a lot of fun uh but my first printed product that i owned myself i played for a while uh with a dm who had everything so i didn't need to buy a whole lot uh and then when i when i bought uh my first one it was Right, early days of Second Ed, I think, and it was the Dragon Mountain box set. I was trying to jump full into uh, being a DM, and so I thought I had to buy the Metal Ralpartha minis with it, so I got the Dragon Mountain minis as well, and I had the whole, you know, I must have spent 60 or $70 on the whole thing, but, but I got it all and then laid it out and tried to figure out how to run it and never got around to running more than like the first session or two of it, but still, I love it, and uh, have have referenced it in other games i've run since then yeah i love how during the later part of fourth edition encounters they referenced some of those places and modules that were early day tsr hobby modules i always thought that was very cool the way they did that hey it's james the (laughs) man how you doing sir i'm good man i'm good how are you living the dream my friend living the dream so what is your favorite and or first memory of a printed module so the First printed module I owned. Uh, so I should I should go all the way back and say that when I was a kid and playing D anD D, it was an opinion amongst my friends that uh, that you were uh, a lazy DM if you needed to play published adventures, which is uh, really not true. But when you're a jerk eleven year old, it, it's a fun thing to tell your friends so that you can maintain your hold on the DM ship and that none of them try to DM. And so uh, one of the first things I got, I was playing uh, a, a ton of D&D and this game called The Fantasy Trip, uh, which is actually the precursor to GURPS. Uh, and the, one of the first things I got was D3 Vault of the Drow. And I was like, man, I do not. This was, it was, it was really hard. Essentially, you know, like, like any young child playing D&D, we had made up our own rules kind of based in the AD&D rules and, and kind of not. But I do remember I loved that book. I loved the the cover art and the maps that were inside. And I am actually an arachnophobe. Uh, <laughs> so I remember like there's all this crazy spider art in there that is is terrifying. I remember I never actually ran it. 
for anybody because I had declared that it was one of those things where, you know, oh, if, if you have to use a published adventure, you're you're not a real DM. Uh, so I could never run it, which was sad because it's a great adventure. So now I'm hoping to, because I don't have that copy anymore, it, it is lost to the sands of time. Uh, I'm hoping to buy it again and I'm hoping to actually play it. And I have to ask then Topher... What is your one of your favorite published modules or one of the ones that you remember owning? So much like everybody else on here, I had B1 and B2. But I remember distinctly begging my aunt, right, who's never going to listen to this. So I'm going to say, hi, hi, Aunt Mary Jean. I hope you're doing really well. <laughs> Miss you. Need to call you. I know that. Uh, <laughs> she loves d she... podcasts. Big roundtable <laughs> listener. <laughs> Big roundtable listener. Um, she bought me B4, The Lost City which I was the first module that I sat down and I read like a book. The other ones I read as like, I'm going to run this for somebody. Right. But that one I read like a book and I read it and I ingested it. And I, and you know, I think at the time I probably could have run it without actually having it in front of me. I read it over and over and over again so many times. It was such a, such a great module. And it's, you know, it's a really well respected module. According to the lovely Wikipedia, it's considered one of the 29 greatest, the 29th of the best modules ever created by TSR hobbies. I don't know where they get this magical number from, but I, I thought that was an interesting fact. But yeah, that's my first one I remember actually having in my hands and like running, and I have real fond memories of it. I think I'm going to try to go back and reacquire the B series in general just to have them. Hey, Topher, you know, it's funny you mentioned reacquiring uh, older modules like that, because I heard that there was a way that we could uh, get those printed on demand. Let's talk about that. <laughs> and look at that. Joe with the segue. Yeah, so um, sometime uh, about middle of November, just randomly popping up on the DMs Guild, there was actually no announcement initially. Now, there has been since then. Uh, that there was a, under the print-on-demand section, there was a listing of old classic D&D modules. And uh, I thought this was pretty fantastic, so I wanted us to talk about it. Merrick actually did a post on it talking specifically about uh, the Dragonlance stuff, but in general, I wanted to talk about it. Uh, hey, Jim and Kelly, there. What's your thoughts? If I remember right, on sun, uh, last time you and I saw each other, you showed me you had you've actually pre-ordered and gotten one of these print-on-demands, right? Yeah, I was. Um, I was actually pretty surprised when they made that announcement recently, and so I I went out there to the DMs Guild, and I have, like I mentioned, I have all these pastel modules, the old ones, and. The first thing that popped out of my mind was there doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason as to which ones they're making available. They're sort of random. For instance, the one I bought uh, is D2, the Shrine of the Kuatoa. And um, I showed it to you, Topher, on Wednesday. You know, and yeah. it's really well done. I mean, the color is almost an exact match for the original. It's a little little bit off, but but not quite. And I think part of that has to do with the there's a there's a shine. The cover is more of a um, I don't know what you would call this, but it's a uh, it's definitely a thicker thicker cover, and it's got a gloss gloss to it. So it changes the color a little bit. But um, I was pleasantly surprised to see that it's almost an exact duplicate of the original, and I do have the original in front of me. I'm holding them right here, and I did show them to you, Topher, and I'll let you talk about maybe what you saw, and I won't I won't mentioned the the difference i saw between the two because i think you did see it yeah so it looks like it wasn't through the whole thing but like the second half or the last third of it the typeset and the print seemed to be fuzzy so it wasn't as crisp as the <laughs> beginning was and it was definitely not as crisp as the 
original was. The original was very, very crisp in the in the printing. What's interesting is I was reading some of the reviews of some of the print-on-demand modules that other people were posting, and one of the comments I saw it more than once was that the scans or the text in the in the uh, the reprints were sort of soft or fuzzy, and so I, I still ordered it, and and I have to agree when you compare them side by side with the original, the font. Uh, used and the, the the type is is definitely a little. It's almost like it's got a shadow to it. It makes it look very soft or all, not blurry. I won't say it's blurry because it's still very easy to read. It's not as crisp as the uh, the original print. Hey James, what's your thoughts on this? I, I know you're a fan of uh, old school D and D stuff. <laughs> I am, I am, and I am uh, I'm a fan of uh, having printed things as well. Uh, I am also a, a champion of of having the old PDF and everything. But I think it's great for people to have options, and I think it's smart for Wizards of the Coast to do that because some people just like to run from a hard copy. As great as it is to have PDFs, when I'm running an adventure, I love to have the hard copy because in adventure I'm often flipping back and forth through and that sort of thing. And even with a search function on a on an electronic book, it just doesn't feel the same. And often like you can you can hold it up and show your players stuff and it's a lot easier than if you're working at your desktop to try to show them stuff. So anyway, I think it's great. And I know that the thing that is difficult about these things is that right now, Wizards of the Coast has sort of dedicated themselves to making these really premium print products. Obviously, that are not without their their flaws. I think certainly a number of monster manuals and, and players' handbooks that were part of the sort of first print run of those have fallen apart. Uh, but I yep. think they've done a good job of replacing those for free. But I think what what their whole thing now is like... Instead of being the place that pumps out a, a book a month, instead of being, let's say, the Five Guys Burgers and Fries, they are now the place that you go to once every three months and have a nice steak dinner at. And that steak dinner is the form of right. this you know, awesome book. And I think the problem with print-on-demand is, in general, they're never going to be that high quality, right? People who are expecting to be blown away by the quality of the print product should probably look elsewhere. But I do think that... These print-on-demand products from all everything I've seen, and uh, it's great to have Jim on the podcast because it sounds like he he has them in hand and knows. It sounds like you can use them to play. They are functional, uh, which I think is is what most people are going to be looking for when they're buying these adventures. Um, you know, if if you really care enough about having a great printing, you're probably looking for some older print run of it because you're a collector anyway. So I think that if what you're doing is is looking to buy these because you want to have them to play and to reference and to read, uh, these are going to be huge and serviceable. And I think, you know, we're going to see people buy them, uh, which is which is really, really great. Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed when I saw the one from James, and I've noticed with other print-on-demand products, is that First of all, the cover doesn't come off like the original, right? Okay. A, so because of that, the map that was inside of the cover of the original version is not there. It's printed on pages mm. inside. Now, the one that James, the Jim had that I saw, that wasn't such a big issue. But I could see something like Keep on the Borderland, right? If you remember that module, when you took the cover off, it laid flat and the whole thing was one big map of that tunnel system, right? And it's printed in black and white. It's not in the blue, which is, you know, kind of a nostalgia thing. I don't think that's such a big deal. That's more of a nostalgia thing for me. The other thing I have, and I've seen this with, I have two other Wizards of the Coast print on demands from DriveThru mm -hmm. that... Things that you would need to make copies of and or to 
cut out like I ordered their DMs guide the, mm-hmm. the from them for the Storm King. And the table tent is just a piece of – it's just printed on a piece of paper in there. And I have to cut up my book to get it out to make copies of it. So I wouldn't mind paying a little up, you know, a couple bucks more, and getting the PDF along with it also. But that is that is an option, though. I can't speak for all of them, but with the D two Shrine of the Kuatoa, when I ordered it, you know, the first option was PDF four ninety nine. The section second option was soft color, soft cover color book seven ninety nine, and then they had a nine ninety nine uh, option. I think it was a sale price. I think it was originally like twelve dollars. It was the PDF and the print book. So I, I can't say that's for all of the modules, Topher, but I know for the Kuatoa one, that was an option I had. I didn't buy the PDF. Oh. I just didn't feel I needed it. Right on. That's great. That's, that, that's fantastic. They're offering that. For certain modules, though, like the, the Tama Cohen or the, the Tomb of Horrors, those had handouts for the players. And right. so you, you would have to cut those out. Uh, they're doing it the best they can. And then for someone who just wants to run it, I don't think that's such a bad option. No, not at all. Hey, Jay Africa, how are you? Hey, good. Uh, so um, in preparation for this, I actually also ordered a print-on-demand module. Uh, and what I picked out was X2 Castle Amber. I'm really surprised by how quick it came. I actually ordered it with uh, with a couple of other things. I ordered it with the Storm King's Thunder DM packet and the Elemental Evil Players Companion just to compare old products and new products, um, you know, rule books versus... DM accessories, player accessories, that sort of thing, uh, and I got to say, I'm pretty pleased with uh, with uh, with the quality. Just to kind of touch on the quality of the scans, and, and you're mentioning that some of the scans seem to be rather soft or fuzzy. Uh, I remember that there was a call put out, I think, sometime late last year, to players and folks who owned past D and D products that there was a this big list of products that they needed scanned, and they would actually pay players like. 50 bucks uh, a document or something like that if they scanned them and sent high quality scans to Wizards of the Coast and so I don't know if that comes into play here uh, as to the quality of you know I mean it, it it all probably is dependent on the quality of the scan and the quality of the module that they had that they were able to scan in but for Castle Amber for X2 it's fantastic I mean the quality of the scan is quite amazing uh, the cover looks great I do see a few like artifacts a few graphic artifacts here and there mostly where the text meets like you know lighter colors but the text quality is I mean unless you really scrutinize it it's fantastic it's really good it looks and feels just like one of the old modules, which I love. Uh, James, I'm also a big fan of having print materials. And so this is just nice to have in hand. And it's nice to kind of read through it and just remember how insane some of these modules were. Yeah. <laughs> um, just no rhyme or reason to some of it. Just pure character for, you know, pure atmosphere for certain portions. As with the module you picked up, Jim, the the map, which would normally be in the inside cover, is also... Uh, just pages in the book. And my big complaint is that because of that, and probably because of how they had to rip the, uh, you know, or had to cut up the cover for a scan, there is one row of vertical squares in the map grid that is missing. And it's not just the fact that it had to be split up in pages, but, you know, this, just the row itself was missing from the scan. And that might have come from the print to begin with. So, you know, again, I don't know if the quality of the scan or the copy that they scanned in, ha- you know, comes into play there. Um, but overall, I'm, I'm quite happy with it. I would definitely order, you know, if, if other modules that, that, that cried out to me uh, were made available, um, I, would, I would definitely make another order. 
right now, yeah, it just seems weird the selection of modules that they have. They're again no rhyme or reason. Like like I think it would, Jim, I think you'd mentioned that. Uh, hopefully they'll as more scans come in and as more of this stuff becomes available, they'll make more modules you know available to the public. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what they have to offer. If we all remember dndclassics.com, when that happened, when Wizards started offering classic products that's from for PDFs a while back, the story that I was told by a, a Wizards of the Coast employee was that that was part of the reason that was made, that was able to happen. Is that, um, and, you know, I don't know if the story's true or not, but I don't care because it's such a great story. Some admin was going through paperwork and found a bill for a storage unit in Lake Geneva. Wisconsin, and and when they went to check it out, there was all of these classic modules that were still shrink wrapped and had never been sold and were just put there. And so they felt like they had high quality product they could scan in. So that was the story I was told. That was the material that was used for the original stuff that went up on D and D Classics, which was uh, run by One Bookshelf, which is runs RPG now and, and um, runs DM's Guild. Oh wow, that's I mean, cool. Again, who cares if that's a true story or not? That's just a really funny story. Oh, hey, guess what? We found the storage unit with a bunch of stuff in it. Yes! I remember the call. I think we got um, through the Adventures League was where they, they made part of that call was to ask for scanned products. So hopefully right. we're going to see more stuff coming out here soon. I, uh, I actually had one of the products that they had listed. And I, you know, I, I took it out of its box and I'm like looking at it like, okay, do I really want to cut this thing up? And I opted against it. You know, I hope that the D&D community at large... Uh, you know, forgives me for not sharing my 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 stuff, but uh, I just could not bring myself to put a to put an exacto knife to the pages and scan them in. Hey, Joe, what's your thoughts? Hey, so my thoughts. Uh, a lot of you guys know I'm attached to a gaming store uh, up here in Massachusetts. It's Modern Myths, and so my thought whenever I see a new product available to the D and D populace is, how is this going to affect things uh, at the local gaming store? What is this going to do either to promote people coming into the store or pull people away from the store or whatnot? And I don't think this is going to do much of either because I think a lot of these PDFs have been available uh, already and, and people that want the print ones are, are going to have them. Uh, but what I wanted to see and what I was hoping uh, would be kind of an evolution of this is that maybe we could start bundling some of these and then have them as things that maybe a store might want to put on their shelf. If you could have like, oh, this is the entire Against the Giants series or these are all the Dragonlance titles or whatever. And if you could get those printed on demand as like a single book that, that people could then go to a store and buy as, as like a thing that they would have. I think that would be more of a draw. You know, I don't know that that's anywhere in their business plan ideas, but uh, that was just what I was thinking in terms of how could, how could you translate this in a way that local gaming stores might gain something from it or, or might, might also be able to benefit from it. But in general, I mean, it's great to have a printed product. You can put notes in the margins and whatnot, which you really hard to do on a PDF. And especially with the older modules, a lot of that artwork, I love just being able to hold up the picture of the horrible thing that it is they're looking at. And, and you know, it's it's the awful 70s art or whatnot, but it still, it conveyed that that sense of, of what you were going into there. So I, I like that as well. I'm obsessed with trying to move Dragonlance into 5th edition. So I would love to get all of that Dragonlance material together in one place. Like you said, that'd be pretty fantastic. You know, Topher, I think that this is just a guess, but I think we're going to start seeing DMs running some of these older adventures at cons. You know, I, I go to—I've been to Gen Con for the last two years. I just love it. I want to go back. And when I was there last this past August, 
I noticed that there were some older, uh, older advanced Dungeons and Dragons adventures that were being run. And I talked to one of the DMs there and I asked him about it, you know, how much work it was to bring them to the 5e rules. And he said it wasn't difficult. He said there were some online resources that he used that helped, you know, with the armor class and things like that. But I do hope, I, I would like to see some of these older uh, classic adventures sort of updated to the new rules. And I'd like to see DMs start running them at some cons and, if I were a young kid and I was really into D&D, I know me personally, I would want to experience some of those older ones. You know, Tomb of Horrors, uh, Ravenloft, those kind of those kind of adventures. On the DMs Guild, there's a, there's a whole community that posts updated notes. So you still have to own the original module. You have to buy it now, either print on demand or buy the PDF of the module or own it. And for a, for a buck or two, you can buy a document that somebody's gone through and swapped out monsters that don't exist in 5th edition or updated, you know, traps and and you know and or what kind of you know checks and rolls to make it's um i've noticed that the other day was pretty great and also when physician first came out i think we talked about this on the podcast way back is the fact that the old uh ad and d and those that era of modules first edition and ad and d stuff low levels like levels one through three you can basically run right out of the box in fifth edition with just a little bit of monster swapping but that you don't really need to update after that after that when you get the levels five and above the math isn't quite as harmonious, but yeah. <laughs> well, right on. So, hey, before we move on, anybody got any other thoughts? Where, 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 where do we think as a group? Do we think this is going to go? Well, I was very critical. I, I think I may have come across as critical. I was not, I'm not critical of this. I think it's great. The, the fuzziness of the words does not make it illegible. Um, it was just something I noticed. I, I like to have these things in my hands like you guys do, and I'm glad that Wizards is allowing this. I'm, I'm glad DM's Guild is, is offering them. And there are ones that I will be keeping my eye out for uh, and will purchase as soon as, I, as soon as I see them pop up. Jay and Jim, I know you guys have ordered them. Uh, how quickly did they arrive from like time of order till time of showing up on your doorstep? <laughs> there were, I think there were five or six different shipping options. Uh, it was basically how fast do you want to get it. Okay. And um, now I will say this, that was the one thing that was kind of a shocker to me was to get a module for $7 is great. But in most of the options, the, the shipping was actually more expensive than the cost of the module. So what I would tell you to do is if you're going to order one, pick two, three, or four and yeah. you know, save on some shipping. Because if you're just going to buy one of these, the shipping's going to really get you. Yeah, I think um, it was like five bucks for shipping, wasn't it? That was the lowest option. And it was, yeah. I think it said something, it, it could have been up to three weeks you know, before they, yeah. they printed it. Um, I went with the next higher one. I think I paid around seven or eight dollars for shipping, and I got it in about five business days. I was pretty impressed. So I ordered those three products, and I was, you know, they they even it even came with a note that said because of the holidays, it may take a while for the product to print. Yep. But but I got my uh, when did I order it? I can't remember. I think I ordered it early one week, and I got it early the next week. I, again, I was I thought it was going to be a, I, I thought that was going to be right down the line. I'm like, I hope I get this thing before we start recording this uh, this roundtable. But it came with plenty of time for me to look it over and to read it and enjoy it, and I was very pleased. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the shipping, Jim, because I ordered the DMs packet. That's the item I ordered to test their print on demand for Storm King Thunder, 
and I was floored by the I was paying five bucks for the for the packet and then another five bucks to get it shipped to me. Now I picked the cheapest method, but it still got to me in like seven to nine business days. It wasn't that bad. Yeah, the sh- you know th- it's unfortunate. We live in a world where if you want to print something on demand, you're, it's a physical product. It's got to be shipped in the mail. So you're gonna you're gonna have to right. deal with shipping costs. So that's why I say is if you're really gonna do this, you probably it's just not gonna be cost effective unless you order two or more or something like that. All right. Thank you guys for your thoughts on this. In the lovely wisdom of Wizard the Coast and at dnd.wizards.com, they have had a couple more unearth arcanas come out recently i know that the roundtables talked about a bunch of those but i wanted to bring up the latest two they've done the first one was the fighters uh as a big fan of fighters i think this was a really fun one hey james what do you think of this when you read through it this unearthed arcana obviously has the most archetypes out of any we've seen so far there's four in them uh it was awesome to see two archer archetypes we have a a knight in there as well in a samurai so it looks like they're they're sort of covering some of these larger bases things that in other editions may have even been a class and i think that was part of one of the design goals right of fifth edition was everything can kind of fit under hopefully one of the the core classes um okay on the night uh i think it's it's really hard to make a night class in fifth edition uh in a especially you know dungeons are right there in the name and obviously having a horse <laughs> makes it hard to get into a dungeon. So it really depends on what kind of game you're playing, but I could see games where being a mounted combatant is is great. And I think they did a pretty good job of not making it all about mounted combat, right? Um, the knight has tons of other abilities. The samurai, I thought, uh, had some, some really interesting things going on there. Uh, sharpshooter, I, I liked. Uh, I really want to talk about the arcane archer. I love the arcane archer of third edition. It's just not working for me here and the reason is essentially the the arcane archer's signature ability is called arcane arrow and they get to imbue an arrow with magic which is really cool and in addition to doing some extra damage you have all these different options that you can choose from that that make it do cool stuff uh so and i'm i'm down with all of that i think that that's great but uh, my problem is that you only get two uses of the feature and then you have to have a, a shorter long rest before you get them back. And I just feel like an arcane archer to me uh, should be doing arcane things on like every turn. Uh, and so granted, these arcane arrows are super powerful. So I don't think it should be this happening every single turn, but I would love to see, you know, maybe some some smaller ability. Now, granted, Part of that might be because it's a uh, archetype underneath the fighter class. So really, it's a fighter first, and then it's an arcane archer. And back in the days of prestige classes, it was kind of like you were a multi-class fighter arcane archer, and you were kind of an arcane archer first. Uh, so I don't know what the solution to that is. I think it's good. I think it's powerful. I think it's a well-built, well-designed class. Uh, it's just not what I would like to see for the arcane archer. Right on. Joe? Uh, the other thing I wanted to say about the Arcane Archer is that it costs a bonus action to use your Arcane Arrow, and it only enchants one arrow. So after 5th level, uh, you're firing a Magic Arrow and then a Normal Arrow every round, uh, because you've got two attacks, and and that's felt not right to me. I can see that. I can totally see that. Yeah, like I said, it feels balanced. You know, it, it feels like you shouldn't be shooting, you know, by the time you were 15th level, right, if you could imbue multiple arrows you could you know shoot three in a row that all do 4d6 damage but like 
I don't know. I just want to have something cool that, that does a little magic arching each level. But like I said, uh, my compliments, because it's balanced, and I think the other ones are all great, and I think the story behind them is is really good. Uh, just not what I would expect to see for the Arcane Archer. Yeah, true. I, I, I agree with you 100%. Hey, Jim Kelly, what do you think? I mentioned to you, to you guys last time I was on with you that I was going to be taking my nine-year-old to start playing D&D for the first time. He has been through, I think we've been through six or seven weeks now, and he's absolutely loving it. But the the class that I told him or recommended that he use was the fighter. I just think it's I think it's a great beginner class. You can survive in combat. You have a higher armor class, higher higher hit points. I just felt he would enjoy it more if he wasn't constantly worried that his character was going to get killed at a low level. So that said, I, I read this really uh, with a lot of attention because you know we're now almost to that level where he can't redo his character in Adventures League. So I'm, I'm going to be working with him to see if he likes any of these options. But there's one thing about the Arcane Archer I wanted you guys to, or I wanted to point out to y'all that I thought was funny. In most games I've played, I've never seen the DM really monitor an archer's arrow count. You just sort of assume that the player is doing that. You know, they're launching arrow after arrow after arrow. And, you know, if you're deep in a dungeon or if you're up in the mountains and there's no way to buy any more arrows, it's like at some point you're going to run out. So I was really, really impressed that they gave the, the conjure arrows at seventh level, which basically means as an action you can create 20 arrows on demand anytime you need it. So I thought that was kind of a, you know, that's kind of nice for a DM not to have to, you know, if you do have somebody who uses the Arcane Archer, I don't have to sit there and, okay, how many arrows do you have left? I don't want to, I don't want that level of micromanaging for my, uh, for my players. So I like that this, this option exists. The downside to the Arcane Archer um, is, you know, I kind of felt like it's stealing some of the Ranger's Thunder. Not really, but you know, Rangers choose people who choose the Ranger class. They choose it for a lot of reasons, but but a big one is you know the the use of a of, of a longbow or a bow. And so, to me, a fighter is a sword and a shield, or an axe and a shield. So, I think this is great. Everyone has more options. Like for instance, I'll never probably use the samurai option. I'm just it's not something I could see fitting into my my campaign. But it's nice to see that they're making all these options available for players. If, if you want to run an Asian you know, uh, campaign or you want to have a player who's dr- traveled far over the ocean and he wants a samurai character, great. There it is. I think it's, I, I, give them, I give them lots of applause for creating this. I thought the exact same thing, first of all, about the Arcane Archer. I thought that was encroaching a bit on the Rangers slightly. But I, I liked seeing the samurai because you know I'm the right age that the Oriental Adventures campaign setting – was a big deal, and so they could, you know, that could fit really well in there if someone wanted to update that for fifth edition. Hey, Joe, what are your thoughts, man? I think that I was looking back through my player's handbook at like the battle master and the champion, and these are way better. Uh, just there's so many more, <laughs> there's so many more cool things that these archetypes do that the basic ones in the player's handbook don't. You know, the Eldritch Knight is, okay, that, that one can stand a little bit on its own because it's got spells as well. But these other ones are so much, are so superior to, to what's in the player's handbook that I, I just don't, if these came into play, I wouldn't see myself using the player's handbook ones ever. You know, as with any playtest product, there were a couple little uh, nitpicky things here and there, like uh, the defending arrow, arcane arrow ability uh, says that when you... Uh, we have a charm that disrupts your enemy's magic, but the effect is that it gives them disadvantage on their next attack roll, no matter what they're doing. So it doesn't have to be magic, but it's disrupting their magic. You know, little things like that yeah. just as editor kind of annoy me. Um, I really appreciated that they had that little note about 
knights and samurai and not actually basing them on their historical uh, realities, but on, on popular culture uh, depictions of them, because I think that's a that's something that gets lost a lot of times and people that really care about that sort of stuff get upset by those things. And so, so I appreciated that they did that, uh, that they threw that in there. I also felt like the whole knights getting extra reactions that aren't really, even if you've used your reaction, but not this turn, but later this round, or it, it felt like they were, they were mincing a lot of words to give you the chance to do an extra little thing rather than just say, here's an extra little thing you can do. They're like, this is an extra reaction that you can use if you've already used your reaction this round, but not this turn. And it, I don't know, it felt a little too confusing, I guess, I think, for a lot of players maybe, uh, because they've been very good about action economy on so many different things. And especially if you're playing, if the knight is a, a, an archetype of the fighter, You've also got the chance to be taking an extra action every round, or not every round, but you know when you use that that feature. Uh, so it could it could get into fourth edition level of well, how many bonus actions do I have? How many actions? What if I convert this to this? Or it, it just it felt like it was going in a direction that most of fifth edition has not gone in, and that that felt a little strange to me. Let let me read this sentence to you because I think I, I I picked up on that. Listen to this sentence. It says you can use your reaction for an opportunity attack. Even if you have already expended your reaction this round, but not if you have already used your reaction this turn. I mean, it's it's pretty clear, but the word reactions used three times in there, and you're right. Sometimes it's like make it a little simpler for for players to kind of figure out what you're trying to say here. Sounds to me like a bonus action. Yeah, exactly. Really does sound like a bonus action. I felt like I was reading a fourth edition rules for a second. <laughs> yeah. Well, but right, a reaction you can make off turn. So right, they're they're basically just saying you know you get one reaction per turn, and that is confusing because I think at a lot of tables, even though they have different meanings in game, people use turn and round uh, interchangeably. I think part of that right, it's 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 going further with that too, and being like, remember these aren't the same thing, you guys. No, uh, I right, yeah. yeah. It's the old adage that semantics matter. Yeah. yeah. When you're, when you're writing rules, they do. Yeah. <laughs> Here's your next podcast, uh, Topher. Turn versus round. Oh, that's somebody else's Scott. podcast. Scott. Um, <laughs> hey, Jay, what do you think, my friend? Uh, I like all of them so far. Um, I, I agree that the knight is really dipping into fourth edition style rules, which... You know, it could be, I mean, part of the, the spirit of 5th edition is is rules for all editions players. And so uh, being a big fan of 4th edition myself, it felt kind of comfortable almost or nostalgically refreshing to be reading these rules. I appreciated all the thought that they put into everything thematically, like the Arcane Archer, all of the schools of magic have their own uh, arcane shot, basically. Um, you know, the knight, again, it's, it's a very, it's a very uh, rules crunchy class. Uh, I like how the samurai has very wisdom and, and you know, just the idea that willpower is consistently brought in. So that's the samurai's theme. Uh, and the sharpshooter, what, what I thought was interesting about the sharpshooters is basically the feet built into the class so you don't have to spend the feet. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I, at first I thought, you know, okay, that arcane archer ability at, at low levels, it's pretty overpowered because the create magic arrow, that magic arrow is basically as strong as a first level spell slot. And you get that what, twice before you take a short, re- short or long rest. And so that's that's like a lot of punch to be pulling at third level, I think. Uh, but then it occurred to me that it doesn't really scale at higher levels so much. You just get more of those um, 
arcane shots to overlay on it. So it's more of a versatility thing. So I think a lot of DMs might have to adjust for it at early levels. It'll even itself out later on uh, during, you know, particularly tier three, tier four. Uh, one thing I also noticed is that, you know, by including the samurai, and I know we're going to be discussing the monk uh, unearthed arcana in a little bit, uh, by including the kensei, I'm hoping that they're going to start rolling out stuff for, you know, Kozakura or Karatur and start working in more of those exotic locations uh, into the world of 5th edition, the Forgotten Realms world of 5th edition. Uh, again, I play primarily Adventurer's League, and that's been, you know, stuck pretty much in the Sword Coast, except when it's in Barovia, and that's obviously a totally different thing. But I think it'd be really cool to just see more locations coming in that are made available for the Adventurer's League. You know, the fact that they're including these quote-unquote exotic classes, exotic, you know, uh, oriental-flavored classes, again, quote-unquote, it bodes well for the direction that I see the game going. Hey, so, um, Jay, you brought up the monk. Let's stay with you. What's your thoughts on the um, the Unearthed Arcana for the monk? Uh, I, I like him as well. I think overall for these, for the recent Unearthed Arcanas, again, there's some tweaking to be done, but I'm hoping that they do make it into the next player's resource. I hope that the player's resource is just another big compendium of class features, because uh, I think, you know, we've had the PHB for some time now, and it's been modified by some of the um, other resources, like the Elemental Evil's, Evil Player's Companion and the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, but I think players are ready for you know, more class options for their uh, for their characters or for new characters to be built. I like the Unearthed Arcana Kensei Monk. You know, it's interesting if you want to build that Wuxia kind of character to have the option of, of having a monk that is just about weapons fighting. But the Way of Tranquility, that one was the one that really jumped at me because uh, I just love the idea that, you know, players are encouraged, you know, a player class is encouraged to try to use other tactics outside of combat, you know, beyond just fighting it out uh, to uh, to overcome obstacles. You know, you get all of these abilities that help you try to be more diplomatic or, or, or help you, you know, heal your allies. And then all of a sudden, what is it, at like 18th, 17th or 18th level or something, you get this ability that basically increases your attack if you see somebody get hit. So it's like all this pent-up aggression kind of working through... 16, 17, 18 levels, and then all of a sudden you get these things that'll give you like a plus 20, you know, damage to your attack or something like that. It's kind of nuts. And I I really like the flavor of that. One thing that I will kind of criticize about that is it's uh, healing hands ability, the the, the, uh, way of tranquility healing hands ability seems a bit OP because it's what, like 10 hit points per monk level, I think. I can see a lot of uh, I can see a lot of paladin users looking at that and going, hey, wait a minute, hold on. So what am I supposed to do with my lay on hands now? You know what I mean? Because that's a lot of hit points to be able to heal. And to be able to heal as an attack during combat, that's nuts. That's not insubstantial. Hey, Jim Kelly, don't you love that monk? I do like the monk. Uh, I want to add something about that healing hands. Um, Yes, a third level monk with this uh, healing 30 hit points in, in a shot and it's it's you don't roll a die it's monk level times 10 so you got you know you have a fifth level monk which a fifth level some people may say oh that's a high level but but to me a fifth level monk that can that can restore 50 hit points that that definitely is a little overpowered the one comment i had about the the way of tranquility was this as a dm <laughs> i can just I can already sort of feel my teeth grinding when I have four players that are ready to enter combat, and I've got a fifth player who wants to try and calm things down. I, I would really have to give thought to this. I, I wouldn't have a problem telling a player, yeah, you can choose choose this path, but 
the problem I would have is, is that, you know, a lot of players, not counting this one, they're geared towards combat. And so if you have, if you have, if you have a, say, a, a pack of um, kobolds attacking, if your monk player wants to try and, you know, make peace or, or talk, let's talk it down, the DM is going to have to sort of, you're going to have to sort of stay out of combat to do that because that's not really a, once combat started, you got people hitting people with swords and things. I don't see how realistically you could try to have a, a character who's trying to be di- diplomatic when the rest of the party is just trying to survive. So it's going to be interesting. I, I don't know um, how I would feel about playing a character like this, but I know as a DM, I would I would have to be, I have to give it some thought because I am curious as to how I would actually you know, deal with a character who wants to to be a peaceful, non-fighting type uh, type role playing. Jay, yeah, yeah, just commenting back on that, um, Jim. Uh, I, I agree. Actually, I read that and I'm like, okay, this is going to be an interesting exercise for DMs if this does become. And again, I play Adventures League, and so um, you know, this rule isn't going to come into play until it comes out into a published module. If it comes out in a published module. And uh, so much, you know, so much of, yeah, so much of D&D is based on, is built around overcoming combat encounters. And you say that there's the one player who, you know, will kind of get in the way of four other players ready for combat. What if you get like three or four players and all they want to do is talk their way through things? That is definitely, you know, going to make it interesting for the DM and, and you know, to try to figure out how do I adjudicate the fact that these raiders just want to keep on killing and and looting and all the characters ever want to do is talk through it. <laughs> on the one hand, that's that's fun and interesting. On the other hand, you don't want the characters to all of a sudden feel invalidated choosing their class if you know you keep on having to stymie them from diplomacy and, and keep on having to say, okay, these guys just aren't doing it. You're gonna have to fight your way through it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's definitely gonna change the landscape if it comes out and it does become popular. Now, Topher, let me take one step back. The way of the Kinsei, which is more focused on using your your weapon with your unarmed strikes, I thought that archetype was, uh, that one was awesome. I, I could definitely see a lot of uh, monk uh, players choosing this one just because of you, you get more weapons to use. It says you can choose dexterity or strength, which the monk has usually had that. But I like I like some of these bonuses that you can have. Like, for instance, you can pummel the target after you've already used the weapon. There's some really nice tweaks here that I don't feel are going to steal from any of the other players. Uh, that's by far my favorite, especially the make an unarmed strike while holding your weapon. You get a plus two to your AC. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Joe. So the, the issue that I've run into with this pacifist monk, the way of tranquility, is... <laughs> Not so much that that I think it can't work in a game, because I've, especially in a lot of home games, uh, I don't think it would work in a convention setting, because usually those modules are written so that combat is a foregone conclusion. Trying to force that into a into like a convention setting might be difficult. But I think in home games, it could work fine. The problem I think we're going to run into is the same problem I run into uh, when I see people playing a lot of bards. They don't feel as effective in combat, and so either if it's a new player playing it and they realize, oh wait, I can't do as much damage, or I can't, I, I can't try this this cool thing, or I, I can't hit as hard in, in combat, they feel less good as a player. Uh, or the other players around the table are like, oh, it's his turn again. I guess we'll wait for him to do a little bit of damage or some other thing, and you know, and and it's almost a, I don't want to say a bullying, but it's it's almost like that, like a, a sort of. A, if, if you can't hold your own in combat, why are you at the table? Go to that other table. We don't want people like that at our table. And I don't want to see that in D&D, but I think it could happen. On the flip side, though, the, uh, the Kensei 
is everything I've ever wanted uh, after I've played Dynasty Warriors. Because you can take any martial weapon and effectively make it into a monk weapon now, make it into one of your Kensei weapons, so you can get like a pike or a giant spear, you know, you could be Zhao Yun swinging your huge spear around and doing all the cool monk things with it, and that's exactly what this uh, what this path allows you to do. Again, I feel it's, it's fairly high-powered, uh, especially when compared to the Tranquility Monk. If you had a Tranquility Monk and a Kensei Monk at the same table, it, they wouldn't even be... They, they're like completely opposite sides of, of that coin there, uh, and uh, I don't know that that would be a super fun game for everybody involved, because if you go Tranquil, then the Super Warrior guy can't do his things, and if you go Warrior, then the Super Tranquil guy can't do his things, so or her things. First of all, anyone who doesn't let a bard at their table needs to come talk to me. It's <laughs> um, really clear about this. Bards are the greatest thing ever. Jay, did you have a thought there? Uh, yeah, for the way of tranquility and the effectiveness in combat, it just occurred to me that maybe that's what the you know maybe that's why it's ten per you know per monk level, so that a monk doesn't feel so confined to you know hold back on it. So, I mean, the role is definitely a support role, and so since the healing hands ability can take the place of an attack it could be the kind of thing where okay you attack and then you heal somebody and then you attack and then you you know you're kind of you're kind of constantly giving a stream of like three hit points five hit points throughout the course of combat which presents a whole other you know set of problems for the dm overall i I don't know if that was the intent of it but but you know i'm kind of seeing it a different at a different light now that you've you've uh, you've brought that up joe i haven't had a chance to play test any of these options so uh, I'm curious to see like what kind of feedback they get and, and if they do make it into uh, a player resource eventually. Yeah, I would love to see that. So, James, I saved the best for last because I wanted to get your oh. thought on this. <laughs> so I, I was pumped about uh, both of these. The Kensei has been a, a class that has reared its head in, in several editions. And, you know, it's all about kind of your connection to the weapon. So I was surprised to see it come up as a sort of monk path because it's like well monks don't use weapons which was the initial reaction of the internet uh so i guess i am more like the internet than i care to admit but then it it turned out like as i was going through it it was like oh yeah actually this all makes sense because it it feels very much like being a monk right like you're you're one with the weapon the weapon is one with you uh it's a little rogue one reference there for those who have seen it one of the things i think that is really good about this as opposed to the actual arcane archer, if I can take it back there, uh, is that, like, you do feel this subclass throughout your entire actions. Whenever you are in combat, you are different than any other monk, and it is because of the path that you have chosen to walk. Uh, So I really like that. I love all the abilities about all the, the stuff you kind of get to do with your weapon, your precise strike, your magic weapons. It feels different than a fighter, which I think is really, really important, but it also feels like it doesn't really step on the fighter's territory at all, right? Like, a fighter still gets to make tons of attacks with their weapon. Obviously, you know, you've got flurry of blows and things like that, but it works differently. It's not the same. I think that that's really, really good. The Way of Tranquility is the monk that I always want to play. And it's funny, I don't see it necessarily as 
written, I don't see it as a, a pacifist monk, and I'm going to explain why. I think that they're a violence is the last option kind of monk, but they're still getting all of those monk abilities, flurry of blows, and, you know, the, the ability to punch people super, super hard. So I think they're still expected to use those, especially when you see Anger of the Gentle Soul, their 17th level ability. Uh, all that being said, I think they have some work to do on this one still. Um, you know, I love the idea of the monk who is sort of the calm in the center of the storm. Uh, I love the idea. I think Emissary of Peace is a really interesting ability that certainly suggests being a pacifist, but at the same time, it seems like it's one of those, like, you're supposed to defuse this violent situation before it happens. If the swords are already swinging, you know, if the goblins are already shooting arrows at you, it's going to be a lot harder. Uh, similarly, with Douse the Flames of War, you can only affect one creature at a time. And granted, it can attack for a minute, right? But if you attack it, that creature can attack you. So it, I feel like it makes things more interesting if... You are fighting a single creature. It's probably something really big and really tough. Uh, it may even have uh, right legendary resistance and and choose to save even if it fails the saving throw if the DM wants to keep it attacking. Uh, but if not, it sort of presents this interesting option then where it's like, okay, we want to try to talk to this guy. We're going to decide as a party that this is your time to use this ability as opposed to doing it in every single battle. Uh, granted... I do think that Jim is right. There needs to be a conversation between a player and a DM before they, they take this. And I also think Wizards really needs to to look at it. Like, maybe instead, uh, Douse the Flames of War, instead of lasting for a minute, should last longer and be an ability that, you know, you can only use every rest, every short rest, every long rest, something like that. Uh, Healing Hands, I thought was great. I think it's a, a, a really cool ability. I am a little worried that it's so much better than Lay on Hands, which is a, you know, a, again, a signature paladin ability. Like, this monk feels like it's 100% stepping on the paladin. And I saw Mike Merles respond to this and say, like, well, you know, it's because the paladin has other ways to heal. They have healing spells. They have all this stuff, which I, I agree with. But it's like, okay, well, then I guess what you wanted to do was make a monk who could heal really, really well. Uh, I don't know. It just feels like maybe it should work a different way because healing hands is so much better than lay on hands. It's like lay on hands on crack, uh, right? It does double the <laughs> hit points. And it, you also can use it in place of an attack when, when you're doing flurry of blows. Like, that's incredible and amazing and makes paladins look like idiots. I do think there's some tweaking to be done to this, but I love the concept of the class. I love, like, this is the monk I always want to play. It's just, it's got a, a longer road to go, I think, than the, than the Kensei. Um, but yeah, really, really cool stuff. Joe? One thing I did want to say, well, while I don't feel mechanically the way of Tranquility is, is up to par yet, I think flavor-wise, it, it works in a lot of, like, if you look at Li Mubai from uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and the idea of, like, okay, you hit him in these four spots, and you stop this poison from working, or you do, the, like, that, that is healing hands. That's exactly the kind of thing that, that uh, where they got that from, and so I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate that they're going in these directions. I just, I, I want them to go a little better. Yeah, well, and you yeah, know what's interesting, Joe, is I, I don't get too worried 
when I see stuff like this because I know the people all talking here are going to take the survey and are going to, you know, provide feedback. So I hope, my hope is that, you know, a, a lot of this stuff gets caught. And similarly, like, there were things that were worrisome in the, you know, the playtest documents that have since come out and I th- <laughs> feel like have since improved greatly. Uh, but uh, but that's why it's important that all listeners uh, who are, are checking this out go and take the survey and give your opinions because they're actually listening to them. So go do that. We're going to link off to both of the um, Unearthed Arcanas that we spoke to. And on there, there's the link to the surveys. All right, guys, any last thoughts on this? I don't know. Yeah, again, I just, I'm, I'm glad that they're, uh, they're putting these class options out for, uh, for you know, playtesting and player review. I am really excited about the prospect of a new player resource coming out. I love the adventures to death. And I don't get to play very often, so I really don't know why. <laughs> I'm so excited. But uh, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing just the world of uh, options for, the, for, for players and for characters to you know, get expanded and see what else there is to offer. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we were talking about old products earlier. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they put out an Unearthed Arcana book with a lot of these options in it and maybe some some new races and a lot of maybe even some more crunchy stuff for, for DMs, some more modules and, and things like in the, the last two chapters of the DMs guide to be in there. Like, that's kind of what I would love to see come of all of these Unearthed Arcana uh, articles. All right, guys, I think we're going to wrap it up for this lovely roundtable. Hey, Jim Kelly, where can people find you? My website is jamesfloydkelly.com, and um, my Twitter is at jamesfloydkelly, K-E-L-L-Y. Right on, right on. Jay Africa, where can the world reach out and tell you how great you are? I am on Twitter at jayafrica, so it's just first name, last name, J-A-Y, and then Africa like the continent. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Feel free to send me a friend request. It's public and all, just also under jayafrica. Um, I've been using Instagram a lot more, so if you want to see pictures of my kids and the latest theater project that I'm doing, but also some of the D&D stuff that I do, uh, follow me on Instagram at jayafrica. Uh, lastly, I have, a, I have a website. It's just jayafrica.com. If you want to send me an email, it's j at jayafrica.com. Uh, but that's really primarily for um, for my graphic design stuff. Uh, I'll be updating that with a bunch of the gaming stuff that I did this year as well. So uh, if you're interested in seeing what work I do beyond D&D, you can see my work there on my website. Whoa, Jay. Right whoa. You are, you are leaving out a very important Netflix appearance, I think. Oh, ha, ha. I was one of, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, the Wizards, a couple of members of the Wizards team, uh, did a appearance on the Chelsea Handler show on Netflix. Uh, and they got in touch with me about rounding up some players. So I got to play a silly little game with one of their, um, one of their interviewees at a local gaming store here in Los Angeles. So if you want to check that out, you can find that on Netflix uh, under the Chelsea show. I think it's episode 38 or something like that. The episode title is you secretly wish you were worthy. And and we all do after seeing the segment, we're like, yeah, we, we wish we were worthy of the Chelsea handler show. So. All right, Joe, where can people find you? Uh, I am on Twitter at Joe Listowski. I'm on Facebook at Joseph Listowski because Facebook didn't believe that Joe was my real name. Uh, not as often as I'd like to be anymore because of my new job hours, but uh, frequently I am at Modern Myths, Comics, and Games in Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, up in the western part of the state. If you're ever up that way, uh, come uh, roll some dice with us. Go go check that store out. It's a pretty fantastic place. Hey, James, where yes. can people find your greatness? As of today, 
the day this podcast launches, uh, there is another new podcast launching, and it is called Tabletop Babble, and that is uh, is the new podcast that I'll be running on uh, on our new network. Don't split the podcast network. It's an interview with the one and only Mike Merles. So uh, I'm going to encourage everybody to go check that out. Uh, you can find it at don'tsplitthepodcast.com slash table dash top dash babble. Uh, working on getting that shortened, uh, but we're recording it uh, much earlier. So people can can check out that new show. Uh, and if you enjoy it, uh, subscribe. There's room for, for multiple D&D podcasts in your life, I, I hope. So listen to me and to Topher each week. Uh, and, uh, and it'll be great. And we'll be on each other's podcasts uh, just like when the flash comes on arrow and and vice versa uh so you can tell us which one is which superhero and uh and then you can find the rest of the stuff that i do a lot of game design work and uh and fun things like that uh over at worldbuilderblog.com uh so check that out hey and um before I give my info, as a personal note, James, thank you very much for launching the roundtable. Uh, I think that this is a well-done, much-needed podcast in the D&D world, and I think it is pretty fantastic that you did this. And I am honored and um, a little bit overwhelmed in taking over for you, and I will always be trying to fill in the big shoes you have put down for me, sir. So from a personal note for me, thank you very much for all of this. And for me, uh, I am humbled that you would say all of those things, uh, and I am super, super excited to uh, become a listener of this show uh, and uh, and hear it every week. And good luck editing. So, uh, <laughs> and I could not think of a person more worthy of, of taking this on, Tover. So uh, people out there are going to be so, so, so entertained by you and, uh, and everybody that you bring on every week. And before we go, where can people find you, Tover? They can find me on the Twitters at TopherATL. That's T-O-P-H-E-R-A-T-L. Also on the Facebook at Topher Cohan. That's T-O-P-H-E-R-K-O-H-A-N. Um, and much like Joe, I am most Wednesdays at Titan Game to Comics in Smyrna, Georgia, here running Adventures League games. So if you want to come by and say hi and play some D&D, that'd be fantastic. And also, you get to hear me here on the roundtable. Thanks, everybody. And hey, until next time. See you at the round table. Okay, people, time for my final DMs Guild pick of the episode. My product pick for this episode is Something Smells Fishy from Philip Beckwith. There's a direct link to it over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. It is just $1.50 for an eight-hour adventure for second to fourth level characters, and it is a classic murder mystery, uh, and it involves a bunch of fish, so the name is like a double pun. It's great. Uh, So check out Something Smells fishy a really fun adventure from philip beckworth over in the show notes you can get a direct link at the tomeshow.com okay people this is my final show i've already talked about where you can find me and i just want to take a moment to thank you so much for listening to me whether this is your first episode or you've been with me since the very beginning 152 episodes ago this has been an amazing ride. And just because I am leaving the Tome Show Network does not mean I am leaving the world of podcasting. You can check out all my new work at don'tsplitthepodcastnetwork.com. Uh, you can check out my show, Tabletop Babble,
Babel, which premiered its first episode today, which is an interview with 5th edition lead designer Mike Merles. So go check that out. Hit subscribe or on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. If there's anywhere else you want to know, hit me up at Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. And let's talk. And also check out my blog, Exploration Age. You guys know all about it. Thank you so, so much. The support that you have given to me and to Rudy over these past three years has been incredible. Incredible. Uh, We've loved seeing you guys. We've loved meeting all of you. Uh, Please, please, please give the same support to Topher Cohen. Uh, Get your friends to listen to the show. Um, He is doing this out of passion and out of love and is an amazing guy. He's going to give a great, great podcast to all of you. So go check that out. Keep doing all of the good things you're doing. Keep being positive forces for gaming in the community, bringing gaming to all kinds of new people and helping people who have lost it rediscover it, and also maintaining your own groups with a ton of fun. Thank you so, so much for doing what you do. Okay, before I go, I do need to thank one more person, the amazing Jeff Greiner. He took a chance on me a long time ago, and I hope it has paid off for him because it has certainly paid off for me. He's an amazing dude, a passionate guy, great at his job, great podcaster, great all-around gamer, great all-around family person, great all-around student. Jeff, thank you so much for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support this show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling, and keep on listening to The Roundtable.